The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely online at kopn.org. Thank you. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I am delighted to welcome my guest, Ms. Claire Brown. She is an award-winning journalist and a senior staff writer for The Counter, which was formerly called The New Food Economy, which is a 501c3 not-for-profit, independent, nonpartisan newsroom that investigates the forces that shape how and what America eats. Ms. Brown holds a BA in food studies from the University of North Carolina and is now based in Brooklyn, New York. She most recently wrote a three-part series investigating the use of prison labor in the food system, and that's what we'll be talking about today. Welcome, Claire. Thanks so much for having me. Well, I'm really curious. How did you become first interested in food issues? I think I was always a little bit interested in it. My mom is a really at-home cook. My grandmother was a caterer. So I was always interested in the culinary side of things. And then I kind of hit college right around the time the Omnivore's Dilemma was coming out. And there was a lot of energy around looking more critically at the food system. So it was a little bit of a right place, right time kind of scenario. Mm -hmm. Well, you're an excellent writer. And I rarely miss an article that you post for the counter and this particular series struck me because it's a public health and a justice topic, and you really dove into areas that are largely hidden and very difficult for the average consumer to find. So tell me, how did you become interested in the food in prison and how workers from prisons really touch so much of our food? Well, the the genesis of the story actually came from a question from a reader that I thought should be relatively straightforward to answer. She asked, does the milk that's produced in prisons wind up in school food? I thought that was a really interesting question, and I probably naively thought it would be really easy to answer. So I started looking around a little bit, and I found that Lots and lots of states do indeed run prison dairies, and I kind of ran aground there. You know, they don't really publish much about where that milk goes. So I started filing public records requests and very quickly found out that a lot of the food winds up with private companies, which was a surprise to me, and more of it gets funneled into hospitals and schools, and I found that really interesting, so I decided to do a three-part series on it. And what's so interesting is that you start your series out with a general explanation that says it's generally illegal to sell prison-made goods across state lines, but since the 1930s, the law has included an exemption for agriculture. In addition, prisons don't generally publish the names of the companies that purchase the food they produce. So how did you go about knowing how to unearth the sources that you found? Uh, very slowly. So the way that I approached the reporting was I essentially made a list of all of the states 
in the United States. And then I began scanning their websites to see whether they had farms in prisons, whether they had manufacturing plants in prisons. And then once I had kind of identified um, which ones at least publicly disclosed food service operations, I then went and investigated who they sold to. So some states sell only to public institutions, and some states sell to private corporations. And then once I had kind of gotten the lay of the land from basically just a lot of reading, I used public records requests to get basically gigantic spreadsheets of all of the prison food sales, and I kind of went from there. So when you were investigating the different states, and you provide a list of those state by state, what is going on and who the prison is selling to or who the prisoners are working for. Once you explored that, were there any specific cases where you just said to yourself, oh my gosh, this is amazing? There was. The thing that struck me as really incredible was this egg farm in Arizona. And the reason that I found it striking was that as COVID hit in March of 2020, all of the kind of public-private partnerships in Arizona corrections shut down. So the people in prison who were working in canning plants stopped doing those jobs. And the people in prison who were making license plates stopped doing those jobs. But this egg farm petitioned the state to allow it to actually bring the incarcerated workers to live on the egg farm for the duration of the pandemic. And that struck me as a really extraordinary deal. So that kind of raised a few red flags, largely because um, it was 140 incarcerated workers who they were proposing be housed in a warehouse that was about 6,000 feet, according to local news reports, which is just not very large for that many people, especially during a pandemic when everyone is trying to implement really strict social distancing measures. The other thing that was really striking to me was that the prison industries actually also used incarcerated labor to build bunk beds for this facility. So it was a very, very close relationship between this egg farm and the Arizona correctional industries. And that struck me as really extraordinary at this time when places elsewhere are just kind of shutting down. Exactly. And in preparation for this interview, I had already been aware of Tyson's relationship with prison workers. And one of the individuals, this is from a Marshall Project report, you know, one of the individuals said, well, if you're letting prisoners out to do these jobs and working in these close facilities, why don't you let them see their family members? You know, it was just like this injustice of we can use their labor and we can put them in compromised at-risk positions with regard to COVID, but, oh, we don't let them see their kids. Yeah, I ran across that as well. And, you know, even in the last couple of months, there was a CDC report that came out that said in Idaho, where people in prison worked in manufacturing facilities, they ended up catching COVID at work and bringing it back into the prisons where they lived. And so not only was it a public health risk for the workers, it was also a public health risk for the people that lived in close quarters with them. Yeah. Well, sometimes when I have conversations with people about this topic of the prison workforce, I get the feeling that there is a good portion of the population that believes that, well, you know, this is part of the punishment, right? Like, you should be working. That's part of your payback to society. 
What do you think, though, about the way prison labor is structured? You know, you've got this great breakdown, too, of wages earned and how much of the wages are actually taken back so that the prison worker themselves really don't earn that much. Yeah, so there are a couple of different wage scales at play with prison labor. In some states, they don't pay people at all. Some states pay people anywhere from a few cents to, you know, around a dollar an hour. And they draw their authority to do that from a carve-out in the 13th Amendment, which says slavery is illegal except for in the punishment of a crime. And what I found interesting in some of the scholarly work that I consulted for this story was that, you know, the founding fathers and the the writers of that amendment never intended for work to be part of the punishment for being in prison. The conception around prison was removing someone from society for a very short period of time to punish them for a crime. And so it was not anywhere near what we see today, which is essentially giant warehouses holding people for very, very long periods of time. So their idea of what incarceration meant was very, very different then. And working for low wages was not part of the deal when that amendment was passed. And so that was an interesting contradiction that I ran across, was that now I think generally it's accepted that people work while they were in prison, but that grew out of the system itself. In terms of wages, there's also this program that I reported on that does pay federal minimum wage, and it derives its authority from a 1979 federal law, and it allows private companies to partner with prisons in order to source labor. The interesting thing about that is that the law was conceived to protect workers seeking jobs on the outside, not so much to protect the rights of workers in prisons. And so it included a provision that allowed departments of correction or prisons to withhold up to 80% of workers' wages. And so you have these people on paper who are making 7 to $10 an hour And maybe that's great because it shows that they're not in direct competition with other minimum wage workers who are in the free world, but it also shows they're not taking home much of that money. Right. In fact, I looked at some of the breakdowns. So some of that money goes to, quote unquote, pay for room and board. Yeah, the carve outs are pretty high. So I looked at Idaho just because I happen to be reporting on Idaho quite a lot. And they kept 25% of wages for room and board. And one of the people I interviewed for the story in the activist community said to me, it's not part of prison that you pay to be there. It just kind of grew out of this program. And I think you know that was one of the things that I ran across over and over and over again, was just the general feeling that you're already in prison. Why do you have to pay to be there? Right. And then, of course, in my own investigations of what prisoners eat, I know that there is a big demand for the commissary foods. They're not necessarily nutritious. In fact, the majority of those foods sold in the commissary are not, but they're very expensive. And if you've got a prisoner who's hungry, they really depend on the commissary for extra food. And so when you think about how much the prisoner actually ends up making, they really can hardly afford to buy anything, including things like toiletries as well as food. Yeah, you know, I got a kind of a first-hand view trying to talk with incarcerated people of just how expensive it is to make phone calls when you're calling from prison. And, you know, I was talking to someone and every 15 minutes, I would have to pay two more dollars. And of course, he would have to pay if I didn't have the app and everything. But 
it's, it's extraordinarily expensive just to access the most basic services while you're in prison, which means that the wages, such as they are, mean even less. Exactly. And we don't need to go down this path, but it is ironic because we know that we say we want to prevent recidivism, and yet one of the ways to prevent recidivism is to have these strong social networks that, you know, they're limited as it is. They're even more limited with COVID, but certainly providing phone access and not extremely expensive phone access would seem to make a lot of sense. But anyway, we're going to focus on food So I was very interested in, I believe it was the part three of your three-part series, where you mentioned Chandra Bazelko. I hope I'm pronouncing her name correctly. She was the author of Prison Diaries. And I also heard her interviewed and she said, you know, she liked working. You know, most people I think do want to feel like they have a purpose and they want to contribute. She liked her job. She liked being able to get out of her confined cell She said, you know, prison is super boring and having a job made it less so. She said she got to eat different food. She got to use a private bathroom and she got a chance to walk in fresh air. So on the one hand, you've got an exploited labor force largely. And on the other hand, you've got a few perks that the prisoners get when they do work. What do you want to share about that? Yeah, I mean, all of the incarcerated people that I interviewed for this story said there were positive things about their job. I mean, one person that I interviewed was in charge of 20 people, and he really liked the responsibility of being able to advocate for people who were working beneath them and making sure they got their breaks and making sure that they were all right in a work environment. And so I think the problem that folks brought up over and over again was these jobs are low-paid and often mandatory, and they're filling this kind of, I think prisons often argue that these jobs are educational and in some cases rationalize the low pay and saying that they're educational, but a lot of the folks that I talked to said, you know, wouldn't it make more sense to have outdoor classes or indoor classes or a robust education system within the prisons or more opportunities for work that is entertaining and satisfying and leads to the kind of degrees that will help get better jobs on the outside. One of the gentlemen that I interviewed was really, really hoping to get into a very small program within the prison that trains people how to operate HVAC systems, which is obviously an in-demand job. And so I think the hope a lot of folks that I expressed, including Chandra Bazelko and, and other folks that I interviewed, was that the job's if they exist, do more to provide education and to set people up for life on the outside. And that includes wages, too. A lot of the advocates I spoke to said if people are able to make higher wages, they'll have a couple of months' worth of living expenses saved up in many cases, and that might ease the transition. I did also run into another line of reasoning which said if the overall goal is to shrink the prison population and have no prisons in a utopian future, then it makes more sense to focus on letting people out and lowering sentencing and changing rules around bail than it does to focus on the actual quality of the jobs in prison. Yeah, absolutely. Let me take one break and remind our listeners, if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are joined by Claire Brown. She is an award-winning journalist, and she's a senior staff writer for The Counter, which is Formerly, it was called The New Food Economy, but it's a fantastic publication online. It it helps us 
understand the forces that shape how and what America eats. And we are diving into her three-part excellent series investigating the use of prison labor in the food system. I had a real eye-opening aha myself when I started to go through the different items that you listed in terms of where all of this prison food goes. You know, when I'm looking at, oh, Whole Foods had a relationship, and I see you've got a list... Dole, a very family-friendly label. Walmart has a brand called Side Delights from Sun Glow of Idaho. So there are many more examples that I can state. But in going through your report, what that did to me was it made me feel like when I go into the supermarket, how do I know all of the different foods that prison labor actually touched? Yeah, it's a very thorny question and one I I wish I could answer for you. I will tell you a kind of tip of the iceberg anecdote that I had while I was reporting this story. So I found out pretty early on in my reporting that the Dairy Farmers of America purchases pretty much all of the milk from prisons in both Colorado and South Carolina. And that's totaled about $11 million over the last three years, which is a tiny fraction of the total milk that they produce. This is a marketing conglomerate that markets about a third of the milk in the United States. And I remember they have these specific brands on their website that they manufacture, including Borden cheese. They do the butter for the Breakstones brand. They make Pelugra, which is a very fancy pastry chef butter. And I just had this experience of going to the grocery store and looking at the shelf and realizing, oh, 80% of the brands on this shelf are manufactured by the same company, which may also have relationships with the other companies that manufacture butter that I cannot see on their website. And that's even more true probably for commodities like corn and soy that just kind of disappear into the supply chain. So one of the things that I found really interesting about this project was that it really is well near impossible to get a comprehensive look of all of the places that prison ends up in the grocery store, simply because potatoes that are not marked, that are sold as loose potatoes, are not really traceable unless they come in a packet where they're prepackaged with herbs. Well, it's interesting, too, when I was looking at some of the sources, you've got a big printout on potatoes, actually, from Idaho. And that's where I got some of the sources for Walmart, etc. But you also list out the numbers of workers, their pay range, and then where you might find some of those brands. There were some more like five guys. You see that everywhere. I was also curious to see, I'm going to jump from Idaho to Georgia now, The biggest buyer of food produced in Georgia prisons is Aramark. And my eyes got big with that because so many dietitians work in food service with Aramark. I had no idea. That totals more than $2 million in 2019 and 2020. Aramark is a food service provider for the Georgia Department of Corrections and many other prisons and universities across the nation. And they are contractually obligated to source the food it serves in prisons from Georgia Correctional Industries. Yeah, so I should clarify, it's not like Aramark is buying food from Georgia prisons and using it at the University of Georgia. The way I understand it, they have to buy prison-produced food and then serve it in the prisons as part of their contract. 
the state of Georgia basically decided we are going to have our food service contractor be the big customer for our food that we produce inside, which does make sense to me. I think it does show us that Airmark's ties to the prison industry go even deeper than I think we realize. You know, if you look at lists of corporations that are associated with prison labor, Airmark is always near the top because they're an internal food service provider and they hire incarcerated people to work in the kitchens. And I think the factoid that showed that they're also sourcing the food from the prisons just showed to me how enmeshed the company is with this system. It's the type of buying relationship that I think would be very, very hard to extricate from. And I just found that really interesting. Yeah. You have another statistic here. Virginia Tech serves milk processed in state prisons on its campus. And in recent years, the state's Department of Corrections has also sold food to one county's elementary, middle, and high schools, a Baptist church, and a Boy Scout camp. Yeah, I found that really fascinating. So Virginia is one of the states that only sells food to nonprofits, state institutions, food banks. And so I asked them, who does that include? And they sent me a list of names, and those were some of the more interesting ones that I found. And again, it was kind of perplexing. It was just one middle school, elementary school, and high school. It was not like Virginia public schools were serving food made in prisons across the board. But again, I just thought that that demonstrated the pervasiveness of the supply chain that we basically don't know very much about. Yeah. And I think, too, looking at the workforce of incarcerated people, you also mentioned in your report that incarcerated people really can't refuse to work. So they're getting poor pay, largely, the lack of autonomy, and mistreatment at work. And I wonder, you know, if people are not feeling well, can they be sick and not report to work. How does that work? I think it varies quite a lot state by state. What I identified was that in many cases, they aren't offered sick pay. I think the question of whether or not they have to work while sick varies quite a lot based on their relationship with management. What I did learn specifically with COVID is that a lot of folks in California and in Washington state did not want to keep working as the pandemic hit because they felt like reporting to work in a factory exposed them to more potential virus exposure than they would necessarily come into contact with if they were just interacting with people who live on the same block or in the same dormitory. And so the idea of kind of mixing with other dormitories, I think, made a lot of people feel like they were at an additional risk of contracting COVID. Now, they felt like they couldn't actually quit their jobs or refuse to work because they worried that they would either have a reduced possibility of parole or that they would face longer sentences or that they would be sent to solitary confinement if they refused to work. And so I think actually feeling sick aside, the notion that people might elect not to go to work just to avoid sickness was not really on the table as the pandemic descended. Right. The whole issue of the pandemic really threw a wrench in so much, as well as pulled back the curtain on so much we're able to see now with what's wrong with our food system. I was really curious, too, to look at the numbers involved. You know, how many prisons are we talking about? And I don't know if how exhaustive your report was, but at the very least, you say at least 650 correctional institutions have some sort of food processing, landscaping, or farming operation 
according to the research by sociologist Joshua Spica at Colorado State University. So of the total correctional institutions, and I don't have a total number on how many there are in the United States, what percentage would you think are involved in some sort of food production that reaches beyond the prison population, but out into consumers' mouths? I don't have an answer for that off the top of my head. One of the most difficult parts of this investigation was actually kind of scoping out the size of the industry. I ran across one estimate that was a little bit dated, that somewhere between thirty-five and 40,000 people work in some sort of prison food industry or farming industry job. Again, I'm not sure about the accuracy of that statistic. It's just a really hard number to pin down because you have a lot of farms and prisons that are only producing food for the prisons themselves. Then you have the kind of correctional industries that are actually only employing a very small proportion of the population, but that do a lot of the private sales. And then you have the kitchen jobs and the manufacturing jobs, and it adds up very quickly. Right. Well, I was curious about Whole Foods, as I mentioned earlier, because in your report, you say, you know, at the time, Whole Foods said it liked the idea of supporting suppliers who found a way to be a part of paid rehabilitative work done by inmates. But Whole Foods also realized and wanted to acknowledge that customers were uncomfortable with Whole Foods sourcing products that were grown using incarcerated labor. Tell me a little bit about the Whole Foods story. Yeah, so in around 2015, it had been reported that Whole Foods was selling tilapia that had been produced by Colorado Correctional Industries. And there were also a goat cheese brand that Whole Foods had purchased. And again, the, the Colorado Correctional Industries has a goat farm. They have a very diversified prison operation. It's a, an operation that I think the state has a lot of, or members of correctional industries have a lot of pride in. Um, and it was kind of a thorny thing because an activist in Houston led a protest of Whole Foods after that reporting came out, essentially asking for the incarcerated workers to be paid better wages. The logic being that it's this luxury product that's sold in Whole Foods, so why aren't the people on the other end making that much money? But what happened was not so much that people made any more money. It was that Whole Foods kind of banned the use of incarcerated labor in their supply chain, and the prison didn't stop producing fish. It was just that its distributors stopped disclosing where they sold the fish, and mm. the people who worked in these jobs did not get a raise. And what I also found interesting was that it sounds like Whole Foods did not have a whole lot of follow-through with that policy. I spoke with someone who was also sourcing goat's milk from the same prison, was not the, the, the biggest customer, but was also buying milk from the prison around the same time, and she sourced at to Whole Foods at the same time. She wasn't sure if her relationship with Whole Foods overlapped with her sourcing from the prison because she kind of broke off the prison relationship around the time she started selling to Whole Foods. But she said she didn't even know about Whole Foods' policy. And so it seems clear that they did not do a whole lot to enforce that policy after the publicity died down from this protest. Claire, we're out of time. And I have, of course, pages more questions. In 30 seconds, is there anything you want to leave our listeners with? You know, this was a really thorny issue, and it was very interesting to report on. I would just invite you to read the series and email us with your thoughts. 
That sounds like a great idea. Yeah, raise awareness and provide feedback and become aware of The Counter. It is a wonderful publication. Well, I need to thank our listeners for joining us. I need to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemelgar and for KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. But most of all, I want to thank my guest, an incredible investigative reporter, Claire Brown. She's an award-winning journalist and senior staff writer for The Counter, and I'll provide a link to the three-part series investigating the use of prison labor in the food system. And I think probably having a conversation on what an ideal situation might look like and starting to think about policy changes would be really important. Great. Well, thank you so much for having me. This was a pleasure. Thank you.